It is an honor to serve the interests of this church and this apostolic company. It's an honor to be your friend and comrade in the faith. And I am absolutely blessed and honored that the legacy of New Covenant Church that goes back to the early 70s has been a church that has a, had an eye on the world as well as our local uh, work. I believe any apostolic company that's worth its salt will know what the Great Commission is, the planting of churches, the reaching of people for the cause of Christ, and that we will sacrifice to that end. Yes, it is a burden, not just mine, but it's the burden of God's word, because the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And aren't you glad that he's called you to be a, a partner in it? And if you didn't know you were a partner in it, well, let me tell you, you're a partner in it. And as you pray and as you send the likes of myself and other men from this church and from our related churches into these environments, your heart goes with us. We can't do what we do without the strength of the local church. The Apostle Paul understood that. And there was no way that the Apostle Paul could do the work that he was called to do, to plant churches throughout Mesopotamia, throughout Macedonia, uh, Ephesus. He couldn't do that without the help of the local church that sent him and supported him. So I say humbly before all of you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We got work to do. So we're going to keep rolling up our sleeves. And as long as I have breath in my body, this is my plan. No retirement, just the glory of serving Christ in his kingdom. All right. Well, hallelujah. That was a warm up. There we are. Well, today. Oh, good. We got we got. Listen, I got I got PowerPoints. We got a lot of stuff happening today. And what we're going to do. What we're going to do here today is open God's word and be refreshed by it. So I have a question for you. When you go out and witness to someone and you share uh, Jesus Christ with them, you tell them of their sin and their need for a Savior who is Jesus Christ, what typically, uh, what kind of response do you, do you typically hear? What do they usually say to you after you share Jesus Christ and the gospel with them? What do you hear? What's the first thing they usually say? Oh, come on, nobody? You better be sharing your faith a little more, family. They usually say this, what church do you go to? And that, that's what I hear all the time when I'm, when I'm sharing Christ. Well, what church do you go to? And further, then they go to, well, how many people are in your church? And then you devolve further and further away from Jesus, which is the point, because our job is to say, who do you say that he is? And to bring people to that confrontation of grace. But yet many want to deflect, as it were, and say, well, what church? What is your denomination? And so today I am going to ask Jesus a question. And we're going to let his word instruct us. And we're going to let his word answer it for us. So Jesus, how many people attend your church? And what is the demographic of your church, Jesus? We would like to know. So we're going to take a look at that today. So if you have a Bible in your hands or in your device, in your phone or whatever you use, let's get it out. And if you would turn with me to 
2 Chronicles chapter 36. So put your seat in the upright position, raise your, ta your, your tray table and stow it away. Put your seatbelt on low and tight because we're about to take off and we're going to enjoy the Word of God. All right, so 2 Chronicles chapter 36. The year was 586 B.C. and God had had enough. Israel's rebellion was at a tipping point and God had warned His people through His messengers and through the prophets time after time to repent and to circumcise their heart and to come back to Him. But the Bible records that king after king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Thirty-nine kings in Israel and Judah, and the vast majority, it is said of them that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they caused Israel to sin a great sin. Well, God was eternally good to His people. However, they took His goodness for granted, which is easy to do. And they rebelled against Him, and God had told them early on in His covenant document in Deuteronomy 28, He says simply this, If you obey My word, it will go well with you, and you will enjoy unprecedented blessing. And He outlines those blessings which are unbelievable. I commend you to reading Deuteronomy 28. But then he goes on to simply say, but if you disobey and if you dishonor me, you will be cursed, you will be scattered, and you will be brought into captivity. Well, that day had arrived. They had pushed God and they had pushed God by going after foreign gods. And finally, it had reached, as I said, that tipping point. God's people were about to be scattered and they went into Babylonian captivity. And God used Babylon as his servant to discipline his people who were in idolatry and in, a, in rebellion against him. So we're going to read here today, first, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, beginning in verse 14. So focus, don't let your mind go wandering around. Hold on for the next 25 minutes and you'll be blessed. All the officers of the priests and the people, likewise, were exceedingly unfaithful. Following all the abominations of the nations, they polluted the house of the Lord that He had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people and there was no remedy. Therefore, He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into His hand. All the vessels of the house of God, great and small, all the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. 
and they burned the house of God. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all of its palaces with fire and destroyed all of the precious vessels. He took them into exile in Babylon, those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years, the word of God. 70 years was decreed because of their rebellion, their idolatry, and their disobedience. They were stiff-necked. They disobeyed the Lord further by not allowing the glorious promised land that he brought them into, a land flowing with milk and honey. The people did not allow that land to enjoy its Sabbath rests. For 490 years, they kept plowing and tilling and reaping and taking, and they did not let the land enjoy its rest. The Bible tells us that one year in seven is the Sabbath rest for the land. But in the seventh year of the land, the land is to have a Sabbath year of rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your, vineyard, your vineyards. They disobeyed. They disobeyed the Lord. In a period of 490 years, they never gave the Sabbath rest to the land. Therefore, their captivity would be 70 years so that the land could recuperate and so that the land could come to its Sabbath rest. What an amazing story. But now we're going to fast forward because I know you as a wonderful people don't like to hear all the bad news all the time. Let's go to the good news side. 70 years had passed. Now that's a long time. That's a long time. 70 years. At the end of that 70 years, God renews his mercy upon his people. God, who is rich in mercy, visited his people again with compassion and loving kindness. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? How great. That was a great song this morning. He is. He is. Singing about God being merciful. He is. He is. And Israel sang that song of God's mercy. And Zechariah, he breaks on the scene like glorious sun rays after a raging storm. Color and fragrance and beauty and music and hope and laughter. Zechariah breaks on the scene to a, a tired and wearied people. And he gives these promising words to those who are in captivity. And in Zechariah 1, verse 16, Zechariah says, Therefore the Lord says, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, and my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord. What beautiful covenant language. The temple, the house of God, was destroyed. We read that. But now God says, I'm coming again. I've got mercy, and we're going to rebuild this. We're going to do it anew, because God is the God of restoration. Further, the Lord was exceedingly angry with the nation, that is, the Babylonians, who held his people in captivity because they went too far. 
They not only held God's people in captivity, they abused them, and they harmed them, and they beat them, and they brought them into slavery, and now they were about to feel the wrath of the Lord for abusing his people. At this time in history, Cyrus is the king of Persia. And in God's sovereignty and in God's providence, Cyrus overthrows the king of Babylonia. And now the Lord, in his wisdom and providence, calls a pagan king by the name Cyrus his servant. And he uses Cyrus, a pagan king, to be his servant in the aiding and the delivering of the rebuilt temple. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Get your head around that. So we read in 2 Chronicles 36, we stop short. Now we're going to take it to the end in verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Look at this. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me the kingdoms of this earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is Judea. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. He's saying, let's get together. Let's go up. Let's build this. Let's build this house. Let's get God's name where it belongs as the highlight, the apex, the beauty of all of the nations. Let's build this Lord, this great God, a house. Isn't God great? This sentence here, it closes out the historical book of 2 Chronicles. It ends with God's mercy triumphing over judgment. The Lord was gracious to his people Israel. He had compassion on them. He remembered his covenant, as David told us earlier. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would not destroy them, neither would he cast them from his presence. Aren't you glad that God is immutable, meaning he is unchangeable in his mercy towards his people? Ah. Mm. Well, the book of Ezra picks up where Chronicles leaves off. Ezra is a priest and a scribe. He was skilled, the Bible tells us, in the law of God. Think of him like a, a seminary professor who, whose job is to explain and unfold the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And that's what Ezra was. He was a scribe. He was a, a learned scholar. And Ezra had a job, and that was to teach Israel God's word and to instruct them in covenant loyalty and into the worship of what God requires of his people. Ezra and Nehemiah tell us a great deal about the return of God's people to their homeland. It's a beautiful story 
of how they returned to Jerusalem and Judea, a return to their homes, a return to their farms, their communities, a return to those vineyards, a return, yes, to rebuild the house of God, to build up the walls in the streets of Jerusalem again. And they tell us of this story, amazingly how it was done with great opposition. In 2002, I was privileged to be in Minilunga, Zambia. Minilunga is in the northwest corner of Zambia. It's a border town, and it borders Angola and the Congo. I was there with our local churches, and we had an elders meeting, and we were enjoying time in the Word, and we were at a break. And so I had stepped outside of this church building. It's a burnt brick structure with rusty corrugated roof steel, and it's just a dirt floor. And so we had walked outside, me and some of these elders, and all of a sudden I started seeing on this dirt road, which was a main road, like a highway, like Highway 70 or 40, but in Zambia, they're not usually paved in this part of the country. So I started seeing a bus go by. I thought, that's odd. Never, hardly any cars ever go by. And then here goes another bus, and then another bus. And I started looking a little closer, and I started hearing. They were singing, and they were laughing. And they were joyful, and I walked closer to the dirt road. Now the dust is kicking up, and here comes another bus. And off in the distance, I see the dirt rising up, and here comes another bus, another bus. And for an hour, I don't mean 10 buses, I don't mean 50 buses, I mean over 100 buses were going by. And then I saw on the side of the bus these big banners. It says UNHCR, and then it dawned on me. 2002. UNHCR, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. These were Angolians. And finally, after 30 years of civil war, they were refugees that didn't even know their own homeland anymore. They were relegated to these places in the Congo and Zambia, these, these refugee camps is where they lived for 30 years. For 30 years they lived there. And finally, finally, Angola had peace. 1975, Angola won its peace, it won its independence from the Portuguese. And when they got their independence, warlords and people decided who's going to be in charge now that we have our independence of Angola. So there was a contest. There was three warring factions that were, were fighting. And next thing you know, a civil war broke out. And over a million Angolans fled for their lives. Just like we're watching on the news with Ukraine. Just like we're watching. And they ran. And for 30 years, they were away from their homes until that day. And God made sure that I was there to see it with my own eyes. And I saw the tears on the men's faces. I heard the jubilation. On top of the buses was pieces of furniture and rolled up bed mattresses and boxes and everything they owned in this world because they were headed back to their homeland, their motherland. They were headed back to their farms and their vineyards. And they were excited to finally, after 30 years, to go home. 
Well, after 70 years of captivity, God's people were going home. They were going back to their homeland to rebuild, to rebuild their communities. I commend to you the reading of the book of Ezra. You know, you always wonder, where should I read in my Bible? I'll give you a little guide. Read the book of Ezra this week. It's only 10 chapters. And then if you're gutsy enough, go on into uh, Nehemiah. It's only 13 chapters. And you'll see a glorious history of God's wonderful people. Beautiful themes throughout those two books. The themes of restoration. The theme of covenant renewal. God's mercy and faithfulness to his promises and how they exceed his anger. Ah, themes of faithfulness to God's law and joyful worship as they were renewed by God's spirit in refreshment to God. Another one of the great themes in these books is God's providence of working out his purposes through pagan kings. God had those kings in his hip pocket. God had all of those kings right where he wanted them. For example, in Ezra 6, there's a king by the name of Darius, and he had a governor who wanted to see the Jews not succeed in the rebuilding of the temple. But Darius was the nephew of of Cyrus. He was the nephew of Cyrus, and he was now leading, and he had compassion on the Jews. And so he told his governor, leave them alone. Leave the people of God alone. Let them move forward with the building project. I like that when the government tells, you know, itself to leave the people of God alone. Don't you wish somebody would tell our government, leave the people of God alone and stop passing these crazy laws that defy the word of God. Man, I tell you, let's tell the government, quit it. Knock it off. Well, anyway... Jarius was one, of, one, such, one such king, and this governor was trying to make a, just a lot of trouble for God's people. But Darius had said to the governor, he says, here's what you're going to do. You stop bothering them, leave them alone. And he says, you know this building project that they're working on? We're going to fund it out of the king's treasury. Now, unbelievable. It's unbelievable. How many of you know that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and God, God moves that heart like a water course? <laughs> God's in charge of kings. So Darius says, we're going to pay for it, the whole building project. And further, he says, more than that, day by day, here's what you're going to do. You're going to supply the bulls, the rams, and the sheep for sacrifice so that they can worship the Lord their God. Further, here's what we're going to take out of the king's treasury. We're going to feed these workers. We're going to feed these priests who do the sacrifice and the worship to God. And we're going to make sure that they have bread and they're going to have wine and they're going to have salt and oil. And it's going to be provided to them day by day without fail. This is a pagan king telling a governor who doesn't like God's people that he's going to supply all of this and it's going to be paid for out of the king's treasury. And he says, I only ask one thing of God's people is that God's people would pray for the life of the king and his sons. The very thing God's people were wanting to do. Well, further, 
Darius, knowing the nature of his governors and others, he says, and I make a decree, one more decree. And he says, if anyone alters this edict that I have just given, he said, here's what's going to happen. We're going to pull a beam out of your house, and we're going to sharpen that beam, and we're going to impale you on it. And your house will be a dung heap. Darius protected the people of God. What an amazing story. In our Bible's great, they're earthy books. But wow, is it exciting when you see how faithful God is to his covenant promises. Well, as we fast forward in Ezra chapter 6, there's an amazing statement about the role of the prophet during the time of this rebuilding. In verse 14, we read these words. And the elders of the Jews built, now look, and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. And the building was finished, and the house of God was complete. What an amazing statement at the conclusion of the building of the house of God and the walls. It was just an amazing statement of how God's people had prospered through the prophesying of the prophets. They prospered through the ministries of God's leaders. God's ministries enabled these people to prosper in their lives and in their building. You see, friends, that's why you come to church. God has his ministries here for your edification and your well-being, to supply to you what he wants for you, which is that you would know his word, that you would know his goodness. When you come up into this place here, what happens? What happens? Place is filled with worship. You've got great leadership here. You hear the word of God. You are prayed for. You are encouraged. Your lives are known. You're looked after. Details about what you're going through is made known to this eldership who gather every week to pray for you. When you don't even know what's going on, these elders are studying their word. They're praying together and they're looking after you. They want you to prosper. They want you looked after. God has supplied to you apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, so that you would attain the stature of the fullness that belongs to Jesus Christ. He wants to see you look like Jesus. And anything that disturbs you, anything that ruffles your life, you've got elders and pastors who love you and who are standing with you. And I say, you need to applaud right now, all of you, David and Stephen and Jerry. They do a great job for you. <laughs> You're a great shepherd, Stephen. Man, we are a blessed people. But that's, but that's what happened here. That's what Ezra said. He, he said, they prospered. The people of God prospered through the prophesying, through the ministry of God's people. So the building was complete. Yep, the house was finished. And they prospered through the prophesying of Zechariah. But Zechariah, he sees something 
far greater than that physical temple that was in front of him. He sees something far greater than those walls in that city of Jerusalem that now stood rebuilt before him. And he prophesied what he saw for their encouragement and for ours. What did he see? What did Zechariah see when he was standing there in front of the completed temple? I tell you, he saw what the Apostle Paul saw. He saw Hebrews chapter 12. He saw Mount Zion. He saw the city of the living God. He saw the heavenly Jerusalem. He didn't see columns of stone and brick and wood. He didn't see walls or gates. He raised his gaze so much higher. And this prophet spoke of what he saw. He saw the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. He saw a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He saw a people worshiping God in reverence and in awe, knowing that God was a consuming fire. That's what he saw. So as we close out, I want you to look with me in Zechariah chapter 2. And we're going to see what he saw after this temple was rebuilt. And I lifted my eyes. And I saw and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to go measure Jerusalem to see how its width and its length is. And, and behold, the angel who talked with me came forward to another angel and came forward to meet him and said to him, run. Say to that young man, that is the prophet Zechariah, that Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a city without walls because the multitude of the people and the livestock in it. In other words, all of that livestock meant that they were very prosperous. It's going to be a city without walls. And I will be to her a wall of fire around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory of in her midst. Man, it, it, I hope you're awake, church family. This, this is the best news you could ever hope for in the middle of a shaking world, that God would be a fire around her, and he would be the glory in the midst of his people. He says then, he says, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I've spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up! Escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. See, some of the exiles hadn't come back yet. They were still back in Babylon. They were old and some were sick and they didn't make the journey back. And God says, no, even the affirmed and the old, get them out of Babylon and bring them back to my place. These are my people. Bring them home. Bring them home because Babylon is about to go down. Wow. And then he goes on and he says... For thus says the Lord, after the glory, oh, this is beautiful. He says, thus says the Lord, of after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. What God is declaring here, what he is saying is simply this. I'm going to send my messenger and he will declare the vindication of my great name. And he will deal. God is going to deal with the nations 
that have abused and harmed his people. Because those people, God's people, they are the apple of his eye. Meaning that they are very precious and dear to him. And he is going to see his glory vindicated. He is going to let these rogue nations know, you don't mess with my people. That's what Zechariah is saying. Further, he goes on and look at this. He says this in verse 9, Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. See, Israel had served Babylon for 70 years in their captivity. Now Israel, with God's help, Israel is going to plunder Babylon. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Oh, I love this graphic imagery of the prophet. He is saying, God is rolling up his sleeves. <laughs> He's bearing his right arm. He is shaking his fist over these rogue nations to let them know that you don't mess with God's people. I don't know about you. But when I was a boy growing up, I had a disciplinarian father. You might, you all, many of you know my dad. He's gone on to be with the Lord. Beautiful man. Love my dad. But he was a disciplinarian. Let me tell you, I know what a spanking is. Oh, I know what a spanking is. He was a disciplinarian. All my dad had to do when I was a young boy going into early teenage, all he had to do was give me that look. You know the look? He gave me that look, and my butt... Boy, it puckered up so fast because I knew, oh, I knew I am pushing the limits and it's about to come down on me. It just took a look from my dad. And boy, did I know. Boy, I mean, it's just you grab yourself because, you know, oh, I've been to that place before. But can you imagine for a moment? Look at the imagery of the prophet. He is saying God is rolling up his sleeve. God is shaking his hand. God, in his fury and his wrath, is letting these nations know who's king, who's in charge, and you don't mess with his people. You don't mess with them because you're going to suffer God's wrath. God is great. God is great. And then in verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold... I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations, say that with me, many nations. Why are we, why are we here? We're, we're here to see the glory of the Lord cover the earth. Many nations, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. Wow. The promise to Abraham that through your seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that I, the Lord of hosts, has sent me to you. Wow! Zechariah saw something far greater than that physical temple. He saw that heavenly Jerusalem. He saw the glory of God, not only filling the temple, but filling a city without walls. So, Lord... We began asking you a question. How big is your church? And Jesus would say, it's so big it can't be contained. It's a city without walls, filled with my people. Well, Lord, I also ask you, what's the demographic of your church? <laughs> from every nation, from every tribe, from every kindred, every tongue. And it's not only filled with all kinds of people, it's filled with prosperity. 
because those of you that have the Father and the Son living within them, making their abode, as John says, making their home in you, you have all the prosperity you could ever want. The maker of heaven and earth residing and living within you, what else could you possibly need? My goodness, the greediness of America and the greediness of our own lives betray an understanding of the blessings and the prosperity that God has for his people to just know him, to be found in him, to not have a righteousness on the basis of how good you are, but a righteousness on how, God, how good God is, a righteousness on the basis of faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. So when you see that and you have that, what do you lack? What do you need? Yeah, no good thing does he withhold. What's your demographic, every tribe? Every tongue, every kindred, filled with prosperity. And Jesus says, I will be a wall of fire around her. Just as the horses and the chariots of fire surrounded Elisha and protected him, Jesus says, I'll do it myself. I will be a wall of fire of protection around my church. And they, my people, will dwell in security. Ah, and more than that. Zechariah says this, I will be her glory and my presence will be with her. This is what we enjoy, friends. This is the focus of Scripture. Paul tells us that Jesus is the light of the gospel of the glory of God. Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, friends, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When, Jesus, when Zechariah records that God will be her glory, we find that that is the fulfillment of the gospel that Jesus is the glory of the gospel. He is the glory of God. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the gospel. And we enjoy that glory every week. We come every week to celebrate the glory of the gospel. We come every week to remember that we are protected and loved and that we are the apple of his eye. We come every week to see this glorious living stones, this temple that is rising in this world to become a holy habitation that God lives in by his spirit. It ain't brick and mortar. It's family to family, friend to friend, brother to brother, sister to sister, sisters and brothers in other nations connecting connecting together, knowing that we've got their back, knowing that when they're sick, they're going to get some help from this church, knowing that when they need surgery, they're going to get the help that comes from a covenant people who pray for them and want them to succeed. Aren't we blessed? Yes. And this temple, this city without walls, I'm telling you, it's rising. It's growing. It's expanding. And God lives in it by his spirit. And we are privileged to come together every week to worship, to celebrate this truth, 
to make this truth known because this truth of the glory of God, the glory of his gospel of the kingdom is the hallmark of this church. And I go to make that known this week in Pakistan. So I ask you to pray for me again as I leave this week, headed back to let that, those churches, those brothers that you saw, those students, those pastors, those future leaders, we're unfolding this truth. We're delivering this truth. And we're planting churches and we're seeing people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I ran out of time. I love you. I thank you for your attention. I thank you for your commitment to God and his kingdom. And may his word be praised. Amen. Stephen.